Amen. Lord, once again, we give you thanks because you're good and your mercies endure forever. And we are hungry. We are thirsty. We are desperate. And thank you that you come to fulfill our desires, to make us the people we ought to be. And thank you for giving us wonderful words of life, the words of eternal life, that we can find hope and strength. We can run this race, we can endure, we can even thrive as we seek to serve you and live our lives faithfully. And now I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us from your holy word. Help me to communicate faithfully and accurately and in a helpful way. We, your servants, are listening. Amen. Thank you so much for the kind way you have welcomed Susan and me into your fellowship. We've met some of you that have connections to our former church, Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis, where I had been the senior pastor, and that's pretty cool to run into folks with those connections. Also, there are several mutual acquaintances that some of you have shared with us. Uh, of course, many of you are connected to North Park. This has all been very fun. I give a big shout out to my colleague, Professor Armida Belmonte-Stevens, who, yeah, amen, not only gave leadership to the Convivio last week, personally, she also wrote a terrific review of my book, Mike from the Margin, so I'm excited about that. <laughs> it's in the most recent edition of the, of the Covenant Quarterly, so we make a connection there. So. And I also wanted to say that Susan and I are grateful for the spirit here. You worship the Lord in singing and giving of your offering and ministry to your children in, in ways that I'm surely not aware of, but the Lord knows. And so God bless you for that. This has really been wonderful. And I'm grateful to be part of the Evangelical Covenant Church as your passions, your purpose, your participation all point to the joyful solidarity that I've been trying to uh, preach about here. We've been going through this brief letter of 1 John, and I come to chapter 3 now, and I would like to ask that you'd follow along as I read chapter 3. I will confess that in some places, reading um, more than two or three verses would be problematic for people, um, but, you know, it's the Bible. So I, fig I can figure I could read a few more verses. So, and I've been trying to make my way through the whole, through the whole letter even though we won't deal with every word. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he, is, as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who, has, no one who sins has either seen him or known, known him. Little children. Let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Everyone who commits sin is a child of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 
Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. The children of God and the children of the devil are revealed in this way. All who do not do what is right are not from God, nor are those who do not love their brothers and sisters. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers. And you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children. Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God and we receive from him whatever we ask because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit he has given us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's no time for me to share, you know, all of my spiritual journey, because I'm old, relatively speaking. But I grew up in New York City, and our family attended a little storefront church in the borough of Queens, and church was intense. We had Sunday school from about 9.30 to 11 o'clock. Then we had morning worship from 11.30. I'm not sure why there was a half-hour gap there, but we thought it was to get candy. But 11.30 to 2.30, so that's a pretty long service. Then we had an afternoon service from 4 to 6, and then there was an evening service from 8 to 10. We were in church a lot. Um, I, I, I wish I could somehow share with you the, the, um, the pathos of what it was like as a young person to be in church a lot. Um, and our church had, a, had an interesting doctrinal perspective that I don't even really have time to get into too much, but I want to give you a little taste of it. Um, the church is called a oneness in terms of its theological perspective. So there's no trinity, which they saw as a Catholic um, bad doctrine but there's Jesus only. So every sermon, and people think I exaggerate when I say this, but no, every sermon ended up with a reference to Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That was offered as a formula. You repent, you get baptized in the name of Jesus, not Father, Son, Holy Ghost, because there is no Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it's just Jesus, Jesus only. And then you know you're saved because you would, uh, get the Holy Ghost, and you would know you get the Holy Ghost by speaking in tongues, because that was there in Acts chapter 2. So if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't a Christian. So you could have done those first two things, you repent, get baptized, but if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't saved. That was the place I was at. Um, you probably got a little bit of the vibe of who I am, you know, science and math were interests of mine, I majored in engineering. So when they told me what this speaking in tongues thing was going to be like, I was psyched about that, but I'm also an introvert, so I wasn't all that excited about being in front of the church and having something happen to me that I didn't know quite was going to be. 
but I had the courage to do it, and I went forward and everything. I got baptized. I, um, I uh, didn't speak in tongues. And, you know, my science mind was saying, this is supposed to happen. I did the steps. Why isn't this happening the way it's supposed to happen? And then I had church people trying to figure out what's wrong with Dennis. Like, so why isn't Dennis getting the Holy Ghost? You know, Dennis is in the youth ministry and all this. I got a lot of stories. Like I said, it's too much. But, but basically, I'm telling you all of this not to demean or disparage or caricature the denomination. I mean, people were earnest and zealous to follow Jesus. The main point I want to communicate right now is that even though they may not have intended it, I developed a pretty frightening perception of God. In fact, I had a difficult time believing that God loved me. After all, if God loved me, why wouldn't he save me? I was trying so hard to be good, to be obedient to my elders, to demonstrate my love for Jesus, to stay out of trouble. So I think it's important for me to assert something that may be obvious for many of you. So maybe this is the first point of the sermon is just for Dennis. I don't know. But it's coming right out of 1 John here. The first point that I want to take away is God loves you. Be secure in God's love. I've been reading from the NRSV. The NIV, which some of you may have, opens up that first verse by saying, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. They like this extravagant picture of God's love. I don't know if it's reckless like we sing about, but it's certainly extravagant. Indeed, God loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us. People who are prone to go our own way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. People who keep dabbling in darkness, people who tend to hurt ourselves and hurt other people. God loves us so much that he made us his children. We're not just creatures that God made. We are related to God. We are joint heirs with Jesus. We become part of a new family. And just like a child born into a new family, we don't fully know what's in store. Susan and I have been blessed with five grandsons, three of them born during the pandemic. I had to resist the temptation to show you pictures of my grandkids. But if there are any other grandparents listening to me, you feel me on this one, I know. (laughs) Babies are amazing. We could spend all day watching them, not having necessarily to change their diapers, but, but you get the point. We, we love exploring these babies, and they have no clue about the wonderful, quirky, bookish, and sometimes crazy family that they just became part of. John says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. We don't know what's going to happen, but we know this. Something good is on the horizon. Since God is love and God loves us, it's going to be good. Rest in God's lavish love. Back in the 90s, there was a TV show called Touched by an Angel. Some of y'all might remember that one. It seemed like every episode, Roma Downey's character, like this apprentice angel, she'd say to somebody at some point with her Irish accent, God loves you. So, and I was like... But then I was waiting for it. (laughs) It's like, God loves you. It's like, I still wouldn't mind hearing, God loves you. Because there are a lot of problems that can develop from insecurity. We can be insecure when we're not sure that we're loved. When we doubt God's love for us, we might have a difficult time extending that love and forgiveness to others. 
That's Nate's story arc and Ted Lasso, for any of you who've been following that one. Uh, you know, hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. I said it again. <laughs> but we are being shaped by love so that we can extend love to others. That's why I call this entire series Formed by Love for Love. John wants God's love to help us be like God, that we can be loving. And also pure, he says. He says that there in the beginning of chapter 3, all who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. So my second point is this, God loves you, resist evil. God loves you, resist the evil. Verses 6 and 9, they baffle commentators because at the start of verse 6, it literally says, anyone who remains in him does not sin. Then verse 9, it says, anyone who has been born of God does not sin. And we're scratching our heads because back in chapter 1, John has already said, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous one. And John also says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. So see the problem? Because John has already said we sin. And if we don't sin, we say we're a, li we're a liar if we say we don't sin. Now he says anyone born of God and remaining in God does not sin. So we, so we, we struggle on this one. We try to fix the problem by stressing a, a present tense in verse 6 and verse 9. You'll see it in some English translations. Does not keep on sinning. One preacher says it this way. With time, we don't become sinless, but we should sin less. And, and that may be true, but it is hard to, yeah, I had to think about that one for a minute, but I, and it might be true, but it's hard to say that John is counting on the subtleties of a verb tense to make his case, because he's been using the present tense all much throughout this letter, it's all over the place. So I'm not going to bog you down in technical stuff, but, but it's a plug for seminary. So if anybody wants to come to North Park Theological Seminary, we're happy to have you. <laughs> Figured I'd throw that one in there. Okay. But a New Testament scholar makes this interesting point that John might be explaining himself right here because in verse 4, he, he defines sin in a particular way. He says sin is lawlessness. And then as if to define lawlessness, he points to the devil, the one who's been sinning from the beginning. So for John, it seems that we all sin, even followers of Jesus who are trying to walk in the light. But we who have been born of God are not in league with Satan. We do not share in the devil's rebellion that kind of lawlessness. In fact, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He says that here too. That has cosmic implications. So for John, because Jesus came to destroy the devil's work, anyone who has been truly converted, who has new birth, who has become God's child, cannot participate with the devil. So to be clear, the point isn't about perfection, it's about allegiance. Because God loves us, we are God's children, and as God's children, we are no longer under Satan's dominion. We must not, ought not, cannot practice the devil's lawlessness. So John is not saying, you know, you got to get out of jail free card like in Monopoly. What he's saying is, he's not saying, don't worry, you can never sin. Instead, he's saying, you know how the devil operates. God's children don't do that. So far, I've said, God loves you. Be secure in God's love. God loves you. Resist evil. I have a third point. It's that not only does God love us, but the reality is that just because God loves us, it doesn't mean other people will. My third point is God loves you even if the world hates you. 
You know, I taught a doctor of ministry class three years ago, not at North Park, um, different school, and was surprised that no one in the class had heard of Drs. Kenneth and Mamie Clark, except the one African-American student in the class. The Clarks were psychologists, a big deal for African-Americans in the 20th century. They have two PhDs here. They're perhaps most famous for their doll experiment. Their experiment has been challenged. It's also been reproduced. But they brought data that helped uh, Thurgood Marshall win the famous Brown versus Board of Education school desegregation case. So the Clarks demonstrated that children, black as well as white, viewed white positively and black negatively. This is to say, even the black children pointed to white dolls as prettier, nicer, smarter, and so forth. The message that black lives don't matter had been drummed into my people for quite some time. I think the same could be said for native peoples, Latino, Latina peoples, Asian people, or physically challenged people. The list of marginalized people in our society is pretty long. Now, I was born less than 10 years after Brown versus Board of Ed. Along, so, so I, along with my older brother, got bused to a white neighborhood in Queens to integrate PS 98. You know, we got a lot of schools in New York, so they just got PS, public school. We just numbered them because it might have had a name, but we didn't know it, PS 98. So I have two, two many stories, but the main point, <laughs> there's a big old fly, I just came right on my words here. Okay. Um, I was going to say something silly, but I won't because I know better now. I've been a pastor for a long time, so I'm like, you know, when the silly stuff pops in your head, you realize you don't have to say that. Okay, so. <laughs> I have a lot of stories about being bused to that, to that school. It was in Douglaston, Queens. It happens to be the neighborhood where John McEnroe is from. There was a Douglaston club where he played tennis. That wasn't the kind of place I would go to. But I had to figure out what it was like to negotiate this space. So not only was I wondering if God loved me, what I already told you from church, I was starting to wonder if other people could love me. I mean, after all, as a black kid bused to a white school, there's constant scrutiny. Our intelligence seemed to be in question, our ability to behave ourselves. People older than me understood these things. So it's no surprise that the godfather of soul, James Brown, right around the same time saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. The older teenagers were saying black is beautiful. Today we say black lives matter. And some white people find all those slogans and songs to be offensive, but they don't realize, or maybe they do, that this legacy of white supremacy is not just the KKK. It's an entire system that conspires to say you are insignificant. John says here in verse 13, do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Now, of course, John is writing about people marginalized because of their faith. But people who have been marginalized for other reasons can understand and appreciate what it means for the world to hate you. And remember what I said last week, the world refers to a way of being that does not accept that Jesus is Lord of all. We all need to pay attention um, to people who have been marginalized by our competitive society because it's those people who have been marginalized who can teach us all what it means to thrive even when the world hates you. The marginalized are, are, are our teachers in this regard. They help us to be sure of God's love even when the world hates you. 
Our competitive society does not understand the way of love. When I was a kid, back in the same era that I'm talking about, love was presented as a sappy sentimentality. Here's a quick montage of just slides. We got all in the family. We got the Jeffersons. We got Sanford and Son. We got Good Times set here in Chicago, all created by Norman Lear. And we accepted his notion that love and justice were matters of personal prejudice and not systemic sin. Now, some of us realize that while evangelicals tend to focus on personal and even private matters, that kind of approach is not enough to demonstrate genuine love. Now, of course, we deal with our, with our prejudices, but, but we have to also address the forces that dehumanize fellow sisters and brothers. That's part of what the world indicates, the forces that dehumanize. And in verses 16 and 19, John shows that love is more than sentimentality. So my fourth point, yep, I got a fourth one. God loves you, share the love. John says that Christ laid down his life for us. And whatever love means, it involves sacrifice, laying down our lives. This is the part that our society does not understand. Our society tries to get people to stop being rude or stop using hate speech. The bar is pretty low for what it means to love our neighbors. John says we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Wow, what does this look like? Perhaps it means setting aside some privilege for the sake of others. I don't, just, I don't mean just leaving the big piece of chicken for someone else at a potluck. I'm talking about my tax money going to help people who are suffering. I'm talking about living more simply so that others might eat. I'm talking about meaning it when we sing, I give myself away so you can use me. Do we mean this? When our kids were little, we made a big deal about their birthdays and we still try to make a big deal. They got the number of gifts associated with their year, with their age. We tried to make them feel very special so every year they would get something else. And even with our limited resources, we tried to make this really a special time. At Christmas time, however, we did not go heavy on toys and gifts. We said, your birthday is about you. Christmas is about Jesus, and we focus on other people. So there were times we would go into the toy store to buy toys, and their eyes would be all wide. But they realized whatever they're picking out is not for them. <laughs> it wasn't cruel. It was a lesson. They knew they were picking up stuff for a family that didn't even have as much as we did. We gave anonymously, sometimes to people that mom and dad knew, they didn't know, but much of the time to organizations that would touch the lives of children in need. My point is that we were trying to teach our kids that love entails some measure of sacrifice, not just good wishes. And you strike me as a congregation that is about action and not just words. So, so I can't tell you what to do, but I encourage you to find these tangible ways to share God's love to people who might get overlooked. I mean, refugees, people without housing, families in precarious situations. Of course, there are bigger structural issues and maybe one important job is helping other Christians to understand that God's love can address sin-sick institutions as well as sin-sick people. Well, you may have noticed that I was trying to break the mold of the classic three-point sermon. I had four points already, and I'm actually going to have a rare fifth one right now, but don't worry, it won't be long. I think John has at least this many. So I've said, God loves you. Be secure in God's love. 
God loves you, resist evil. God loves you even if the world hates you. God loves you, share the love. And my last point, God loves you, enjoy divine communication. Did you catch how in the last few verses of chapter 3, John says, if, if, if we're getting this love thing right, we can be confident in prayer, asking God for what we need, and we, quote, receive from him whatever we ask. Oh, my goodness. What a word. Now, some of us have been around a while to know that this verse isn't about God being a celestial Santa Claus, giving us what we want because we've been nice and not naughty. This is a promise that preempts all of our excuses. See, I've made my share of excuses. I've also heard my share. I told you last week about the excuse the church gave so they wouldn't have to be uh, ministering to the kids in the neighborhood who live nearby the church's building. See, we have excuses for how we can't love right now or how we maybe they're just too hard to love. So we have a bunch of excuses. Maybe the prayer is to preempt our excuses. Perhaps if that church could have held tightly to the promise here at the end of chapter 3, they could have prayed to God against the fear that so many white members had of bringing the so-called city kids into the church. Maybe they could have prayed against the general inability to relate to their neighbors. Maybe they could have prayed for courage, for empathy, for opportunities. Maybe the point John is making is that we don't pray to satisfy our selfish desires and get more stuff. He already said, don't be tempted by the things in the world. He said that in chapter 2 already. But we pray for whatever is needed for us to be who we're supposed to be and do what we ought to do to help people see Jesus. God wants us to succeed in this mission of loving other people. So God promises to give us what we need when we pray. Amen. I shared a bit about my convoluted church background, storefront in New York, different churches as a young adult, eventually to the Evangelical Free Church because I went to the uh, the seminary to Ted's, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, Shortly afterwards, then to the Mennonite Church. And actually I was ordained in the Mennonite Church for quite a number of years until I transferred to the Evangelical Covenant Church and finally, found my ecclesial home at my old age, I realized along the way that while denominations serve a purpose, the bigger issue is learning about the joyful solidarity we can have with God and with sisters and brothers from a variety of backgrounds. I mean, I love my ECC community and family, but I'm not a denominational chauvinist. I really think there's something big and wonderful going on, and we can be part of this. One other little story. Susan had this wonderful idea many years ago of getting a table big enough to accommodate our family as it increased in size. This is before we had any grandchildren. She learned about this Amish furniture maker in Pennsylvania. So now we have a table with 16 leaves that can be inserted. It could probably go almost the length of this aisle. I am not kidding. Now we have lived in a different place. So I don't think we could ever get it all 16 leaves open. But she said, no, I don't want a kid's table, an adult's table. I want everybody at the same table. This is before we had any grandkids. I think the most we've ever had around that table was, what, 13, 14 people, huh? 15 people we've had her at the table. Okay, that's, but it could be more than that. We never had all 16 leaves in the table. But, but every time I think about that table or look at it, 
I, I mean, as you put the leaves in, they made it so that the legs moved out and the, you know, shifts, uh, shifts the center of gravity so it never will be unbalanced, right? So for me, that expanding table has become my metaphor for the kingdom of God because I want more people to have a seat at God's great banquet table. <laughs> I want more and more people to know that Christian faith is not about winning culture wars, it's about turning the world upside down, <laughs> amen, through love that turns enemies into family. I want more family at the table, amen. And when we partake of the Lord's table, the Eucharist or the communion, we not only assess where we are personally, we look backward, we look forward. At the same time, we look back to that meal that Jesus had with his disciples before his own public execution, where he is giving his hopes and wishes for his followers. We look forward to that great messianic banquet where we will feast with the Lord in glory. So right now we have this privilege of celebrating the Lord's presence with us right now. And, and, and communion is not really a somber occasion. I was taught that when I was younger. It took me a long time to realize it's a joyous occasion. They call the person who gets to do what I'm doing the celebrant. This is a good time. God is here. Jesus is with us. The Holy Spirit fills and empower us. empowers us. God is here. The Lord is with us. I want to invite us to partake of a meal together. This simple meal. That's a, that's, that's a foretaste of what we'll experience in glory. It's also a remembrance of what our Lord did with his disciples. And in the present, it's a recognition that we are connected one to another and to the Lord himself who is present here. So I'm going to invite us to this time. If you're uh, listening in at home, this would be a good time, if you haven't already, to get your get elements together so you can commune with us too. Those elements, bread, cracker, how, how, what you have available there, because it is a simple meal. Get a cup, wine, juice, and join us. Let me offer a prayer of consecration. And then I'm gonna invite us to pray together the Lord's Prayer as I move into this time, as we all move into this time of communion. O oh Lord of all, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this wine. Gracious God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit on these gifts that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your son in his death and resurrection, that we may be acceptable through him being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ and bring us to that heavenly feast where with all your saints we will be gathered in glory everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church and the author of our salvation by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. On the night our Lord was betrayed, after he gave thanks, he took bread, 
and broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on that same night, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. All of you drink it. The apostle Paul says, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim our Lord's death until he comes again. Sisters and brothers, as we prepare to come to the table, please join me in the Lord's prayer and using the word sins. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.